Welcome to Story Conversations. Um, my name is Simon Arrowsmith, and with me as usual is... Susan Griffin. Fantastic. So Susan, why don't you tell us all about our wonderful guest today? Well, our guest today is a, a gent named Peter Lenz. Now, Peter describes himself as a mad scientist. <laughs> And you'll, you'll know that that's probably apt when, once you listen to this episode. He is a geospatial data analyst guru with a company called Near. He, um, his background, he's a geographer, you know, and if, if, if geographers were superheroes, his character would be Map Man. I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, Peter is the only person I know who once held the official job title explainer, which just makes him pitch perfect for a story conversation. Absolutely. So let's go. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for being with us today. We, we generally like to start these conversations by asking our guests to tell us their origin story. So I understand, um, you know, from, from Susan and from your LinkedIn profile, you, you describe yourself as a mad scientist. I'd love to get behind what that, because, you know, you've, you've got quite a varied background. How does a geographer become a mad scientist? Tell us the, tell us the story of that trajectory. So... The reason why I am a mad scientist on LinkedIn, at least, is because of storytelling. It go on LinkedIn and take a look at everyone else's titles. I am the, you know, chief mugwump of analytics. I am the supreme commander of sales. Those are boring titles. You see those in a lots of different places. Mad scientist is cool, <laughs> and you know, I'll. T- to start with a story, I won an award a couple of years ago for groundbreaking research um, at, at Quirks Magazine, and they have awards. They call them the Quirkies. So I've, I have a quirky. <laughs> um, and it was a black tie event. Um, and being me, I went online because I, I, I am a working class kid from Queens. I don't own black tie clothing. <laughs> we, we do our own plumbing. <laughs> um so I took a look at the rules. What is our black tie? What is black tie clothing? And I'm reading through it and I get to the bottom and it says Highland dress is also black tie. I have a kilt. My wife, I've, I'm Irish. So I have a kilt, of course. Um, so I went out and I, and I got all, you know, I got the, the Prince Charlie short coat <laughs> and I got the full proper Highland dress what tartan are you peter what tartan are you black watch because i'm not part of a clan so anyone is allowed (laughs) to wear black watch plaid goodness so i have proper black watch plaid um i followed the rules (laughs) i was a stickler for them if i if if you're going to break the rules or bend them to as far as they can go you have to follow them still You can here and no further, but here can be pretty damn far. (laughs) Um, So I wore Highland dress to this because there was a room filled with a thousand people in identical clothes. And even if I didn't win walking out of that room, they're going to remember the guy in the kilt. And that is what it means to be a mad data scientist, (laughs) to find the edges of the rules, to find the corner cases and exploit the bleep out of them. (laughs) 
That nice. is great. So you 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 did uh, geography at college, is that right? Yes. So I went to Hunter College, City University of New York. And this is usually where people say, go whatever the team name is. But I don't <laughs> even know if we had sports. <laughs> Hunter College is three skyscrapers in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So, you know, up, not out. There was no yeah. quad. We had a we had a deck a couple of floors up where you could go and sit outside. Um, and yeah, I studied geography. So why did I study geography? Because I like everything. I'm interested in all sorts of things. I am interested in how it's all connected. Mm. And I actually didn't go to college to become a geographer. Right. My mom wanted me to be an audiologist. She's a was, she just retired, a special education kindergarten teacher. And very working class family. My family's got electricians and carpenters and railroad workers and blah, blah, blah. But we have no no college graduates. Um, my mom was the very first one. She saw aud- audiologists would come in. They got a lot of respect. Peter, you got to do that. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So sure, whatever. Um, and I took an elective in geography. You know, I, I grew up in a household. We would get train magazines and train magazines are all about place, you know railroads connect places so these maps i looked at all sorts of maps i remember you know lord of the rings at the very back i i read lord of the rings but then i reread the appendices at the end of it with all the maps Mm. and the histories and i was really interested in this real places railroading fake places places were interesting so anyway this elective was available and i took it railroad magazines came to your house when I was growing up... Railroad magazines still come to my house. I, when I was growing up, TV Guide came to my house. What, 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 what was the fascination with railroads? Uh, my family has been involved in railroading for a very long time. So in the current generation, my brother um, works for a railroad. He just got promoted to management. He fixes the trains. Um, the baby's crying in the background. Should we start? <laughs> no, no, keep going. No, no. no. We, we, we okay. love, we love ch- children and dogs in the background. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> so that's Tessa in the background. She's Aww. four months old. <laughs> um, my brother fixes the trains. I have a cousin who is an engineer. He runs the trains, but go back. My father worked in the shops. My grandfather was a master machinist for the New York City subway system. My aunt worked for the railroads and on wow. and on and on. It's, I don't think anyone planned it this mm. way, but, you know, we got to America and we became a, a railroading family. Mm. Um, so I'm kind of a black sheep in that I don't work for a railroad. I've never worked for one. <laughs> but the, but yeah, but I say, but the, but the terrain in which they travel across obviously became of interest, but I'm interested in this thing that you said, you know, you, you are interested in how things connect. And so is that how geography took you? Took so you yeah, to, let me get back yeah, to, to my story. First day of geography and I'm going to say professor, but looking back, it was probably a very underpaid graduate <laughs> student who is being made to do this, you know, intro class said geography is the most interdisciplinary of all the sciences because everything happens on Earth. Everything, the common thing of everything, unless you're doing like number, pure number mm. theory, everything has a geographic component to it. 
and my was like, yes, I am doing this. Let's do it. And I guess I succeeded in that. (laughs) So, okay. So degree in geography and, you know, according to your LinkedIn profile, because that's where we always go, right? Way back. Because nobody makes those up. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Way back, you had a job and it was described, the job description was you were an explainer Ah, at yes. the New York Hall of Science, and and that is described, it's explained, as answering guests' questions about the exhibits of the hall and the scientific principles behind them, as well as leading groups of guests in structured activities to demonstrate these same principles. Sorry for the recitation here. I feel like I copied that from a website. Maybe, <laughs> but um, you were essentially from what I could read, a scientific storyteller. And and I would imagine, knowing that if I had been a guest at the New York Hall of Science, you were making these obscure scientific principles accessible to mere mortals uh, like myself. That sounds like an amazing job. It was. It was actually my very first job. And it's funny you should bring it up because it has come up twice this week. Oh, really? I am on vacation in Florida, and I brought my son to the Fort Lauderdale uh, Museum of Discovery and Science, MODS. Um, And I was thinking back to my days as an explainer because I tried to explain to him what was going on in these exhibits. Um, And the other place where it came up was, again, on LinkedIn. Someone posted some random thing but it had a picture of an exhibit that's called mathematica which is always my favorite one to explain when i was a hall of science employee and there's what it is and we're gonna i promise this is going somewhere (laughs) this person was standing in front of a gaussian distribution so gaussian distribution is the normal distribution it shows up all over science you think of a probability curve that's the gaussian distribution i guarantee you (laughs) Gaussian's distribution tells me that you're thinking about the Gaussian distribution. (laughs) You're likely thinking about the right thing. Um, So it's this little exhibit. It looks like Plinko from uh, 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 what's what's the game show that comes on midday? Drew Carey's the host. Um, Anyway, there's Plinko. There's this game. Yes, Price is Right. There is a game you put a uh, a little ball at the top and it bounces off all these pegs and it falls down into the right price, right? So this exhibit, this Gaussian distribution exhibit is like that, but with hundreds of balls. And they come down and they bounce off all these pegs and they fall down to the bottom. And when they fall down to the bottom, it holds them there. And guess what? They show up in the Gaussian distribution, a big hump in the middle with less likely things towards the right. edges. And it shows it happening in real time. You could stand there and watch the balls come down. They go up this conveyor belt. You can hear like, rah, 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 in the background. By the way, as an explainer, as the motor got worse and worse, it got grindier and grindier. <laughs> so uh, you figured out if you got there in the morning and if it sounded like, rah, you were going to be calling the exhibit team to come and fix that that day. Don't, don't go to that exhibit. <laughs> um, 
but you, they would come up to the top, they would drop down, they'd plink, 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 and you would watch it happen, um, which was great because motion is what captures people's mm-hmm. attention. These kids are running through the Hall of Science. I'm like a freshman in college, uh, and I am a I'm an extreme introvert, so I don't really want to talk to them, even though that's what I'm being paid uh, minimum wage to do. Um, and they're running around. You want to get their attention, right? There's all these great exhibits about cool stuff, but you have to interact with them. This one was going on its own, and you could catch them at this thing and sort of redirect them into the other exhibits, parts of the exhibit, because all these mathematical things going on. Um, and I always love that. Like, if you were in other parts of the museum where things were highly interactive, they'd come over, they'd do something, because they never read the instructions. <laughs> so they would never do the right thing. And 12 seconds later, they'd be on to the next one. You could catch them here. There was motion. You, it, was, it was a good place to start conversations. So you were a minimum wage storyteller. You got to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah. It was my first job. I've, by the way, if you're in New York, go to the New York Hall of Science, Queens, look for the rockets. The, oh, okay. So the, the, um, your storytelling skills or, or, you know, that you used in this job in, as an explainer, was there a relationship between coming from a railroad family if you like a family of people who worked on the rails were were there stories around you growing up and were those stories of trains (laughs) i would say it's less about the stories that were being told and let me take this from a different angle names are stories Mm. so when you my family are people who build things, railroads being one of them, but they build things. There's carpenters, there's electricians. My brother and my father are both electricians. There's plumbers. There's all sorts of of jobs where people build things with their hands. In those physical jobs, you have tools, and every tool has a name, and that name is different from the other tools. I have a ha- I'm holding a thing in my hand. It, it hits nails, right? That's a hammer. But there's types of Mm. hammers and they all have names. There's a claw hammer. This is a demolition hammer. This is a mallet. This is a neo-attack tool. There's different things. They all have names and all those names have context. What do I use this for? You have to learn all of these different, like I said before, there are rules. You, you, You find the rules and you find where they bend. You have tools and tools have uses. Uses are rules. Lots, when you encounter you said before going off-road we're going to go (laughs) off-road there are two types of poor people in the world there are clumpers and there are splitters splitters look at the differences between things i have lots and lots of different tools ultimately people who build things are splitters we have tools all those tools have different uses i use this screwdriver and this screwdriver look exactly the same. They both have Phillips head ends. They're Phillips head screwdrivers, but this one is insulated and this one is not. This one over here, that insulated one, I can use that for electrical work. This one that's not insulated, I can use this for other types of work. Different, similarly, really, really similar tools, different uses, different rules. That's splitting. Hmm. Clumping is the opposite. I look for the commonalities in things. I have screwdrivers. 
So most people start out as clumpers, and as they become more knowledge about something, they become splitters. Mm. I think one of my superpowers is I never stopped being a clumper. Mm. So I take a look at problems, and I see there's lots of different things, and those different things have different rules and uses. And those rules and uses came by because of you know, people, people doing things and discovering why you needed them. But I can come at it and see the commonalities. And one of the great things about geography being an interdisciplinary science, I told you we're coming back to this. <laughs> get us back bit. on track. Um, <laughs> get there eventually. Um, get back on track. Ha, 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 ha. Um, one of the great things about geography is you can cross so many different disciplines. So as a spatial data scientist, which is what I describe myself as now, I can start the morning working on a computer science problem and end the day working on something that's like a deep human geography problem. And you see the same things come up over and over again in different disciplines. Different disciplines have learned the same lessons, but they've come up with different names. So if you're a splitter, you see this thing over here and this other thing from this other discipline as separate things that belong to have separate rules and separate toolings and separate lessons. But if you're a clumper, you say, these two things are the same damn thing. And I can use this tool over here. I can use this methodology from, you know, statistics and I can bring it over here and apply it to a human geography problem. I can say, I have a data set with a trillion different data points in it. And as a human geographer, that's a huge amount of data. That's really hard to do. But as a computer scientist, I can say a trillion rows is nothing. I can do that on you know, a particularly large laptop, and I can go and use this tool that I would use to do big data math things and just say this is a different type of number, and I can apply it. That's, I think, a key thing about storytelling is that names, tools, they're all the same thing. Mm. You know, the stories are ways of conveying information to people. Names, different names of tools are a way of conveying. These are the different ways I use these tools. Statistics are different ways of saying they're a different type of tool. They're a mathematical tool. So, you know, one thing that people talk about is data-driven storytelling versus narrative-driven storytelling. They're the same Mm. damn thing. As a clumper, I'll tell (laughs) you. You're, you're you're arguing the same places. You've learned the same lessons, but you're coming at them from different directions. You know, That's Peter, like... when you and I first met, when you were a data scientist at a media company called Distillery, and, um, you know, it was about big data, AI-driven data, but your expertise was definitely in that kind of subset that was geolocation data. And I remember I was consulting and marketing um, for them and you, you, had a, you had a gig speaking at a New York data analytics conference. And you know there were these other guys and, and women talking about zeros and ones and you know machine learning. And you, your presentation was called the zip code and other lies your maps are telling you. 
And, mm-hmm. and I remember sitting in the audience as you essentially told the story of the history of the zip code and how it mutated into and 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 why we shouldn't necessarily always think that the data is is telling us certain things that we have to dig deeper to ascertain whether the data is actually true but i mean i remember sitting there thinking man this guy this guy's a phenomenal storyteller and I, I'm. I would love it if you'd share with our audience a little bit more about that. That what what prompted you to tell the story of the zip code, and maybe if you could share a few little interesting factoids about Zippy, <laughs> Mr. Zip, Mr. Zip. You know, I I mentioned before I'm on vacation. I've came down here on an airplane and one of the movies that was playing was a history of Sesame street, which tells you the type of person that I am that on an airplane, I want to watch a history of Sesame street. And they showed um, the very first scene. And there's a, a, a post office box outside of one, two, three Sesame street. And Mr. Zip was on the side of it. And I started hitting my wife in the arm, my arm. And she has our, our daughter in her arms. Uh, the, the aforementioned, Tessa, um, and she's very annoyed at me that I'm very excited that I can see Mr. Zip on a <laughs> fake post office box. And, and who, inf- who was Mr. Zip? Explain uh, that for our Mr. Audience. Zip. Yes. By the way, so zip code. What is a zip code? Um, zip code is a postal code system in the U.S. It's five digits. People assume that they zip codes are aligned with places, but they are not. Um, a place can have multiple zip codes. Zip codes can also align with things that don't exist in the real world. They can overlay each other. They can exist vertically. Um, they are not geographic. People like them because they're easy to collect. You have, If you have people's addresses, you have their zip codes. So people love using this type of data in the U.S. But what does zip code stand for? Well, back the post office had these things that were called postal zones. And when they finally decided to break out postal zones into a nationwide system instead of a piecemeal system that different postmasters had for different areas, they launched the zone improvement plan. And then they spent millions of dollars. And this is in the 60s. So millions of dollars is a lot of money. Um, Millions of dollars to figure out how they're going to sell this to the people. So they actually had uh, uh, also they had Mr. Zip Toys. (laughs) Um, they had this character, Mr. Zip, who's going to sell Americans on how to use the zip code. So they had Mr. Zip toys. Um, they had Mr. Zip cartoons. They had, I think they were called the Zipettes. I'd have to look that up. And they were a music group, like a 60s psychedelic music group that had a whole album about the post office zip code system and why wow. you should use it. So they put a lot of money into like the selling of this. And they also spent a lot of money on coming up with the call it. Um, so typical government efficiency, they spent millions of dollars to come up with a good name for the zone improvement plan, which they called ZIP, which is Z-I-P or zone improvement plan. Your your tax dollars at work, people. <laughs> so so this was all an attempt to to tell a story that would sell a program that somebody thought was going to improve efficiency? 
Well, first off, if someone's opening their mouth, they're selling a story. Uh, there you Everything go. is stories. There you go. Um, but yeah, the idea here was to improve efficiency to make it was to sell people on mechanization. Previously, you had mail. It went to somebody. So post person looks at the envelope and says, oh, I am in Manhattan. This is going to Duluth. I will throw it in the bag that is headed towards Chicago. And then someone at Chicago will figure out what bag to throw it in that's headed towards Duluth. And every part of this sorting note system has to be smart. It has to know where the other things are. So let's say instead of Duluth, they're sending it to some little town you've never heard of and say, oh, this is going to Minnesota. I'll send it towards Chicago because they're a lot closer to Minnesota and they'll figure it out down the road. And it was up to each individual post person to figure out, open a bag of mail. Oh, hey, look, there's something for Minnesota. Um, I know that. Or I'm in Minnesota. Oh, hey, there's this little town. I know where that is. Put it in the bag that's headed that way. Um, And so every single node in this network, because the postal system is is a network, a delivery system has to be smart. Zip code mechanizes this. I have a system of zip codes. Everything everywhere is inside of a zip code, even if it's not geographic. And it's sorting instructions, it's a topology. Zip code 12345 has a connection to zip code 67890, because there's no tens. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so instead of having someone be smart, the machine reads that code. That's what that barcode is at the bottom of your mail. That's the instructions for the zip code system. So it reads that, says, oh, I can put this in truck XYZ because it is going that way. And it will go into this bag of mail, which won't even be opened until it gets much closer mm-hmm. to its destination. It's now routing instructions for how to move things across this network. Um, but you 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 titled that presentation, and other lies your maps tell you. So there's something so here, about yes. the zip code. So here's system. the lie part. Uh. Zip codes are routing instructions, but people use them as a map. The post office itself, by the way, if you ask them for a map of zip codes, will tell you we can't do that. We they don't even have one because they're not a map. Zip codes are not places. They're routing instructions for how to get things from place A to place B, how to move a particular mail or a piece of package from this place to this other place. But people glommed onto it. They said, oh, yeah, you know, zip code 12345 is a place. It represents the places, buildings that are inside of this place, the people who live at this location. And I can use that to do research i can use this to represent the people who are in a place which is good because you have that piece of information and the the hardest thing in data science is having the information if you don't have information you can't do research on it so if you have zip code great but you got to recognize the limitations you Zip codes aren't stable. They change. They're routing instructions. So if a place starts getting lots and lots more mail, they will split it off and give it its own zip code. Famously, each tower of the World Trade Center had two different zip codes assigned to it, one for the bottom half of the building and one for the top half because it got a lot of mail. The size of a zip code is not geographic. It's the size of how much mail Mm -hmm. goes to that place. So if you have a warehouse, that warehouse might have a zip code all to itself. 
Not a single person lives there. It's a warehouse. On the other hand, you might have hundreds of thousands of acres that represent one zip code because it's a residential place and they don't get a lot of mail. Um, so it's, it's, it's not a stable system in that it's not representing people in a place, but people use it that way. The other thing about zip code is that it rapidly stopped being efficient. So the post office had to introduce patches. And the first one was the zip plus four. So a zip code is five digits. By the way, that initial zero is important. Computer science people, you always forget this. Zip codes aren't numbers, they're text. The initial zero is important. Very important. <laughs> ask me how I learned this. Don't ask me how I learned this. I just wrote um, that down, though, even though I'm not a data scientist. No. Zeros Seriously are important. important. Yeah, if, I wrote it down. If I teach no anything, anything, that initial zero is important in zip code. Um, five digits they still need better ways of sorting things because some zip codes are really big and some are really small geographically. So they introduce an additional four digits. This is the zip plus four. After a couple of years, that becomes inefficient to manage as well. And they add what's called the carrier route, which is literally a, a number that represents a individual postal person walking or driving a route and delivering mail. And zip fours map onto carrier routes, but those carrier routes change daily. They're not something you can use to do data on because they're delivery system. There's how to get the mail from place A to place B. So December, people are sending lots of Christmas cards. The carrier routes change because now we're going mm. to optimize for sending things in December. In summertime, you've got less mail going to a place. Maybe people have gone out, you know, on vacation. Your carrier routes increase. They get bigger because there's less mail. People love to see things and tell themselves a story. This number represents a place. Mm. But it's not true. Uh, story, everything's a story, uh, right? And I, I believe that people believe the stories they tell themselves more than any other story that they will ever encounter. I, but people are not always telling themselves true stories. <laughs> Zip codes are not places. Ivermectin does not work <laughs> to cure your COVID. Stories are powerful because that's how people – There's the. I think the organization has thought most about how you tell stories and connect data is actually the CIA. They have this group that's called uh, – that where they, they have an analyst school where they teach people how to think and talk about data. And they have declassified some of the, the materials that have gone through that program. And one of them is a great book that's called The Psychology of Intelligence. It's a very, very dry read, but a very, very interesting one. <laughs> very dry, <laughs> like very dry. Um, but one of the things that it talks about is something called the DIKW pyramid. Data sits at the bottom of the pyramid. It's wide. There's lots of it. On top of that is information. On top of that is knowledge. On top of that is wisdom. Analysis, data storytelling is described by this. You start with raw data. That just numbers, facts, things, things that are objectively recorded. True or not, they're just information, is the next level. Information is 
things that you get out of that raw data. You clean it. You provide some kind of statistics on top of it. You, you've done something to go from raw numbers that have been collected to something that now fits inside someone's head. Um, all the big data science, by the way, is the art of taking things that are a lot of numbers and f- making it something smaller that fits inside of mm. a single unit, a single computer, a single person's head. The next level up is knowledge. This is where it turns from numbers to text. This, These are the bullet points. These are the things you can take away from the information that I've collected. And then there is wisdom. It goes from things that I am as an analyst am saying to things that exist inside of your head. It becomes a story that you tell yourself. That's how people get things into their heads. Mm. Most people don't recall just raw facts, raw numbers. They recall the story of something. They recall it because it suddenly is a number with context. Um, It's a thing that they can tell themselves and reinforce it by telling themselves that in the future. Um, So that's how you get from raw data to something that's inside of someone's head. Um, I've gone so off-road, I don't even remember the question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing I was interested in, you you were talking about, you know, how we, we all tell a story about certain things in our head and we create the story about ourselves, we create a story about them. I was thinking about zip codes and I was just thinking about how the media or, or, you know, particularly fictional side of the media um, probably isn't helping. If you're you're trying to convince people that a zip code is actually a set of instructions, something like, and this is me demonstrating my age, um, a TV show like 90210, it it kind of creates a sense of place. It doesn't create a sense of an instruction. that's exactly, you've created a story yeah, yeah. about a place. Yeah. You know, that particular zip code at the time the show was big in the 90s spread across the extremely rich Beverly Hills mm. area, but also a very not rich area nearby. Mm. They were part of the same zip code because they were served by the same postal routing system. You created a story in your head, but even when the show was around, that story was not real. Yeah. At best, it described part of the yeah, area. Interesting. Um, See, so you're you're now the VP of Data Science for a company called Near, and you uh, you know, data science is AI, machine learning. These are things that are very you know sound like black magic to 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 me. I don't know about you, Susan, but that, that's how- so. So let, let me tell you <laughs> another story. AI. Yeah. Is just a name for technology that doesn't work yet. <laughs> when something, be- when something works, it stops being AI. Once upon a time, you know, uh, voice recognition was black magic science. Mm. You know, mm. that was the thing that drove AI research in the 1980s. I have that on my phone now. Yeah. You know, you can get kids' toys that do that now. Yeah. It's not AI. <laughs> so it's. It- so okay that's great that is really interesting it's like you know the whole idea that uh what we previously thought was magic is actually just technology now it's it's you know. um was it an, an arthur c Clarke um mm. story you know there's no difference between su- sufficiently advanced magic and sufficiently advanced uh technology <laughs> so in the, well, wait, you, we like to talk about the dark arts of marketing even though mm. people think about marketing as science but you know that's that's an aside the the work you do for clients what what kinds of things are you helping them to understand 
with the data and, and is is that tied to the your geography and stuff like that? Absolutely. So Near is a geospatial data science company. We think about anonymous location data derived from many different sources, cell phones, you know, transaction data. And yes, before anybody asks, because this is always the first thing I'm asked, we are fully privacy compliant, GDPR, <laughs> CCPA. If there's an alphabet soup law that's out there, I promise you we are we are compliant with it. We have we have a lot of people who are paid a lot of money to make sure that we stay compliant with all of those things. Um, our business is taking that information. Remember, all things that ha humans do happen on the earth. So all data created by humans on is geographic data because it was created on the earth. So we take all of this geographic data we figure out how to make it geographic data. Sometimes that's really easy. There's a lot and long in it. Sometimes it's really hard. Oh, hey, this is transaction data that occurred, you know, at a in you know Austin, Texas, where this anonymous identifier bought a bag of M&Ms. How do we turn that into high, you know, high fidelity location data? And I can't say that because it's proprietary. Um, but that is, that's what my team does. We take all of these different, many, many different sources, turn it into geographic data, put it into our big data store, and then we manage that data store because people want to use this data and they want to tell stories from it. Mm -hmm. They want to be able to say, how is my store in uh, my not doing today? Or how is my competitor's store in Fort Lauderdale doing today? That's they they there's numbers that they want to get to, but that business problem is a story. It's it's a plot, and they want to find out what happens at the end of that plot. They want the conclusion. That's that's ultimately what 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 you want out of it. I remember I remember seeing an interesting chart. Uh, I think it was in the New York Times um, during COVID. You know the real height of COVID, where they they mapped where people were forwarding their mail to, and obviously it was anonymized data, but it it showed how... So I know that data set is not anonymized data. You can buy oh. that from the post office. When you move, they sell that data. Um, you can subscribe to it. It's very, very expensive, but you can be told where someone was and where they are now. It is very much so mm. not anonymous. Wow, yowza. Well, thanks for... <laughs> you do not heads, get that data. Note, up, note to self. Um, but... But, you know, to follow up on Simon's question, um, and actually to tie it back to your uh, DIKW uh, analogy, you say you're in the business of creating big social science. Um, mm -hmm. Can you explain that a little bit more relative to what you just described that the sure. Near so does? This is, this is what I think that I'm doing. And, and I fully acknowledge that this is a controversial statement. People will tell you that this is not what's happening. But I think it is. If you look at the physical sciences, physics, astronomy, we're moving more and more what's called big science, where 
once upon a time, if you wanted to be an astronomer, you went to the top of a mountain where you had a telescope and you looked through that telescope and you might be your telescope that you own yourself, or it might be one that your institution owns, but ultimately it's local to you. Today, you're an astronomer. We just launched the James Webb Space Telescope, which is a multi-billion dollar international project with literally tens of thousands of people working on it. It is big science. You can't be an astronomer anymore looking through, or at least one who's pushing the, the edges of science with the telescope in your backyard anymore. You can't be a physicist without having a particle accelerator, which requires, you know, the one the Large Hadron Collider is built by CURD, which is a collaboration of almost all the uh, countries in Europe working together. Big science. Um, the by the way, the paper that was um, written where they announced they had discovered the Higgs boson. Um, the very first person who's listed, you know, when you talk to, about a paper, it's a person's name at all. They made up a fake person to be the first person of that paper. Doctor, I forget what the name is, because there were literally thousands of names on there. And how do you figure mm. out what's fair to be the first person to be listed in a paper with thousands of names? And that's where physics is going. Thousands of people work on a single paper and spend decades or an entire career. One thing gets figured out. Physics and astronomy have been there for a while. Social science, I think, is going there now. Mm. You can still be a social scientist right now by writing up a survey in Word, printing it out at your local Kinko's, and handing it out. Um, and there's other details in there, but you can that's, that's your data observation method. I think those days are rapidly, maybe not coming to a close, but becoming antiquated. We're getting to a point where social science is going to be done by huge data sets that have co been collected through digital or what they call fidgetal, which is the combination of physical and digital together. All of these means, technical means, and it creates big data. You don't have hundreds of observations. You have trillions of observations. In physics and astronomy, that means that nation states have had to become involved with collecting this data. In social science, it turns out we created this system without ever realizing it. We call it the ad tech and martech ecosystem. Um, there are sensors. An ad is a sensor that sends information back to someone. Um, it's no different than the sensor you put on a tiger in a jungle to understand the health of that, that jungle ecosystem. Except now it's a human ecosystem hmm. that you're trying to understand. Um, I am very excited to be one of the still very few scientists who gets to play with this data on a day-to-day -day basis and figure out and think about not how to use this to sell you a can of soup, but how do I manage this system to create the world's first always on census, global census? Because that's, you know, I, I'm regularly asked by new salespeople at my company, who are our competitors? And you know, they'll, most people, if you ask them that at the company, they'll tell you one of the other companies that are in the human movement data ecosystem. I don't say those. I say that our competitors are the U.S. Census, the European Union Statistical Agency. Um, those are my competitors. That's the scale that I want to work on. I want to have 
a system where I can think about what everyone on Earth at a meta sort of census scale, because censuses are private, they have differential privacy and other things built into them. What are those people doing? Not at a 10-year cadence, at an everyday cadence. Mm. Can I talk about this geography? And it's not a zip code. It's a geography that we make up, that we can define and think about why it should be shaped this way um, and have reasons for it, not just I'm delivering the mail. Um, create a geography, figure out what people inside of that geography are doing at an aggregate level and report on that information on a daily basis. That is big social science. Wow. Wow. It's bringing together the computer science component, the storytelling component of, I want to understand, I have a business problem, which is a story that I want the conclusion to and marrying the two together to be able to think at always on scale. Wow. And so, I don't think everybody agrees with this mm, yet, okay. but it's where I think <laughs> we're going. And there's a reason I work at the company that I do, because I think we have, we have the nascent version of that right now. Wow. Um, and I could leave it to other people to drive the vision of what we're doing, but I don't think they're going to do a good job as I am. <laughs> you know, not, not to toot my own horn, but toot toot. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you're working on this really, really big idea, but you're also DJing at Nears um, Spotify Fridays. Uh, so yes. you've got a playlist. Now, is that playlist data driven or story driven or or a bit of both? It is absolutely story driven. Um, a because I use my data skills to do other things, and I'm too tired <laughs> to do hmm. it that way. Um, but also because the way that we do it is, I post a couple of you know, initial things in a theme, something stupid like numbers, and then let other people follow on with whatever they want. Hmm. Um, because I am a believer in people should take things the way that they think that it should go. So if I could post some, I create these things in the themes because they're puns and I love puns. <laughs> um, but you can take it in a completely different direction. And why should I be, you know, the dictator of what it means? Human meaning comes from many different angles. Everybody brings their own component to it. So it's like you said and earlier. I recognize that. So it's like you said earlier, people believe the stories that they tell themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, this has been great. We're, 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 coming kind of to the end of our time here and but what we like to do is really end our conversations by asking um our guests if they have a if, do you have a favorite story um you you are immensely funny um you're a husband and a father uh and an insatiable um ob curious observer of human relations so you tell who's and what's and where's in your stories, but do you have one story that you just love to tell? Hmm. <laughs> what's my favorite story at the moment? I think that I, I, I think the best one that I can come up with right now is just, Hmm. 
There's so many. I, I asked you to edit this part out. Oh yeah, I don't think, worry. I am really thinking hard on this. We'll, one. we'll jump straight um, to it. <laughs> it can it can be a, a story of today or just something you told as a child or or anything. Just your favorite story. It's hard to do a command of performance. Um, <laughs> I, I'm better with a prompt. Um, uh, uh, I think. I think. A, Good one would be. Oh, I'm just drawing a complete blank at the moment. Well, you can always. Sorry, I'm, I feel like this is a brain fart. That's right. You can always oh, do. Uh, oh, go on. Here's so I'm sitting in. <laughs> I'm sitting in my in-laws' bathroom because it's the quietest place here, and I'm looking at their hoard of toilet paper in front of me, which is they've still they got at the beginning of COVID. So they're in South Florida. And the interesting thing about South Florida geographically is that it is both a highly connected location because it's the closest part of the United States to South America. When people think most people when they think about South America, they seem to think about it as being west of America. Like it's down near California somewhere. Because that's where Mexico is. But they, they don't realize is South America is actually, you know, parts of it are east of the east coast of the United States. So the, the east coast of Brazil is way out in the Atlantic. It's in Atlantic time, etc., etc. So it's very connected that way. But it's also very isolated because it's at the end of this long peninsula. And it takes effort to get stuff here so there's all the rest of north america there's lots of different highways that connect but if you're coming down to south florida it's got to come down you us 95 so the this part of the us was hit with very acute shortages very early on in covid because it's just hard to get stuff here so there's this mountain of toilet paper in front of me but it didn't used to be here. At the very beginning of COVID, my in-laws ran out of toilet paper. And they went online to try and order some. And they're price conscious. So they're trying, looking through all the different ones. And there was price gouging. People were getting, spending lots and lots of money. Or they were charging lots and lots of money for toilet paper. Far more than they should have. But they found this really cheap one. And... Yeah, you know, this is in line to what you would pay for 26, you know, rolls of toilet paper. Um, they must be getting the last good deal in America. And so they bought it and it came just a couple of days later. And so they went down to get it and there's no big box of toilet paper. And what well, was delivered? Was it stolen? Oh, no, this is terrible. Oh, my God. And they opened up their mailbox and inside is this little padded envelope. And they open up the padded envelope. You know, and inside is the 26 rolls of toilet paper for a dollhouse. <laughs> so sometimes uh, that good deal <laughs> is too good to be true. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> that is great. Oh. That is great. Peter, well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, entertaining us with, you know, some really interesting stuff about some really interesting subjects that i think a lot of people probably don't realize how interesting it can feel quite intimidating i think some of the stuff around data and as you said you know ai and <laughs> what it is but it's fascinating you know one thing that i love about being a scientist is that the real world has this endless amount of detail no matter how far down the rabbit hole you go 
there is always more rabbit hole. Mm. Well, thank you for being our spirit guide in the rabbit hole today. <laughs> and we'll have to have you back. Absolutely. Absolutely. And maybe next time I won't be in a bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Oh, my God. I just, we are, you know, I, I know, I, th- I think I say it every time, which is we're being spoiled. We are being spoiled. The people we're speaking to, are, you know, those conversations are so great and each one is so different and we're learning different things and yet there are sort of similarities between so many of our guests right and you know on the on the surface you know you would think that there are no parallels with some of our guests to (laughs) to business and then suddenly you know it's like right business people can learn from these kind of out there conversations Mm. we have so what, <laughs> and this was definitely in many ways quite <laughs> out there um, so what let's let's think about what our um top three takeaways might be what was your first one yeah um well you know as we said at the in the intro peter describes himself as a mad scientist and he explains why but <clears throat> the takeaway i had were was that mad scientists the best of them are enthusiastic storytellers about the things that they're genuinely and passionately curious about. And and because they're scientists, they, they're they often deeply steeped in things that the, the mere mortal doesn't mm. know about. And, <laughs> and they are deeply knowledgeable. So my takeaway would be that, you know, if brands want to emulate the mad, the enthusiastic mad scientist... They need to demonstrate that they are relentlessly and enthusiastically focused and knowledgeable of the business problems mm. from of the, that their prospective customers are facing. Yeah, absolutely. And then they need to tell the story of why they can help a customer, a client, passionately and with conviction. You know, and not to be afraid of being a bit mad. I mean, if you're <laughs> if you're really relentlessly focused on something, there's there's a there's a madness to that. Yeah, and and that actually that was my my next point would be about you know don't be afraid to be different, don't be afraid to be quirky, to be yourself. Um, you know that great anecdote that Peter told about wearing the tartan kilt to the quirks event you know it's it's memorable it's sort of funny and fun but it definitely made him stick out he makes you know it makes him uh he he comes front of mind so he yeah he knew he had to do something different yeah yeah in order not to just be another black tie in the room Mm. so maybe brands you know of course they need to be serious but actually the most important thing for them is to be genuinely expressive of what differentiates their brand and once they've got that they've got to kind of lean into it and really embrace it boldly exactly exactly um i found i found the story of you know being an explainer to be really interesting Mm. um i think brands need to be a source of reliable and and continuous expert information for clients clients come with a problem 
Mm. It's typically this big sort of overarching problem. And agencies need to be able to explain the the context of their expertise. They need to be able to be a source of information that perhaps brands don't know. When a brand comes and says, we need to win at X. You know, we need we need help figuring out how to achieve Y so we can achieve our goals. Being able to explain some of the things that, and demystify some of the things that are going to help deliver value to a client and tell stories that reveal the nuances of how a particular brand, a particular uh, uh, agency core competency is going to help a client achieve what they wanted to achieve, Mm. I think is key. Um, And, you know, there are things that brands think they know about, but they're coming to agencies and coming to service providers for help because they yeah. know they only know the surface, mm. which is why I found the zip code story to be so interesting mm. because it's like zip codes aren't a destination, but they're rather a delivery process. They're not a place, they're a yeah. delivery process. Yeah, Brands come with the same surface level information and they want their consultative partners to be explainers bringing that data yeah i mean um, it's it's so interesting isn't it quite often i'll work with the clients around a, a pitch document or a pitch process and they will stick so slavishly for want of a better word to a creative brief the creative brief is what the client's asking for that's what i'm going to deliver and a lot of the time I'm sort of saying, yeah, but what else? You're, you're, they're coming to you for expertise. You are the expert. If you think this is wrong, you need to tell them this wrong and why it's wrong. You need to find that pain point for them because they can't see it themselves. Right. And I think the winning clients, are the, sorry, the winning agencies are the ones who can find the real problem for the client and answer it. Right. And explain it in a way that they yeah. can embrace it and say, aha, now I get it. Yeah. So, so we're saying... Deep, deep knowledge, relentless focus. Don't be afraid to be quirky in yourself and be an explainer. I love that. That's fantastic. Well, you know, that, that was an end of, end of another great Corey, uh, Corey story conversation. Uh, join us next time when we'll be uh, having more fantastic guests. We have got some really exciting guests coming up, as if the ones we've had already um, weren't great. Um, as always, Story Conversations is brought to you by Griffin and Skeggs Collaborative and Iambic Creative. Between us, we will help with your marketing and uh, content needs. We understand brands. We understand design. We understand content copywriting. And we even understand the world of sound and sound branding and all sorts of exciting things like that. Thanks for joining us and please tune in again. Bye for now. Bye.